Welcome to episode 31 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is David Prendergast. I met David in 2009 when both of us worked as English teachers in Spain. David is someone who is very self-reflective, highly intelligent and a genuinely good guy. Here are some of the things we talked about in today's episode. Becoming a dad, social media, the current state of journalism, studying the humanities, Native American culture and war, the significance of dreams, overthinking, taking risks, and local history. Thanks for listening. David Prendergast, long time no see, my friend. How are you getting on? Not too bad, Kevin. Not too bad. How are you keeping? All good, man. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be out of lockdown soon. It's been a, it's been kind of a long, consistent three or four months. But um, I'm optimistic about the summer. I'm like, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of doing a bit of hiking and camping this year. Yeah, I think this this lockdown has definitely been the hardest one as well. This last one since kind of. Christmas, because we were kind of promised that we'd be out of it by Christmas, and we only kind of hit shit hit the shit hit the proper fan at Christmas, you know. And this is the one, you know. I suppose January ICU numbers are up, hospital numbers are up, deaths are up. People start to realise, oh fuck, where are we at all, you know? Um, and with, with us as well, like I mean, with a young baby, and that was that was the hard. We like I live next door to my parents, so you know, we've been over and back, like whatever, but. January, we said, fuck, we better take this serious, you know. So for a month, we stayed away from everyone, and it was, it was a tough slog because the baby started teething and everything, and she was like a bear. And, you know, when you're on, it's just a two I found that tough now. And everything shut down as well. Like, there was a coffee shop down the road from us that was open. It only opened in the summer, and that was a great outlet, just been in the back house and over to have a coffee shop just down the road. And they shut down. So, yeah, it's been... Every weekend is the same as well, man, you know. Um, look forward to working during the week because it's not to do with the weekends. So hopefully the summer will open up. We'll see what happens, you know. Not too optimistic, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, just for context, whereabouts are you in Ireland? And how old is your baby, man? Congratulations on becoming a dad. Oh, yes, and, uh, we are still born bred and glued to curiosity. <laughs> um, yeah. I started like even in, in secondary school, any any chance they got in English or even uh, Irish, and I could work crossing into I always work crossing into that's all I, all I ever wrote about in school. And uh, and sometimes I wonder like why am I still here? Why am I still living in this place? Like where, where there's very little to do even without a pandemic. But uh, yeah, still here, never left the place. And uh, baby's nine months, she'll be ten, ten months at the end of April. You know, so she's really exploded since Christmas. Now she's um. You know, since Christmas, she started like learning a new trick every week almost, you know, just kind of sitting up, crawling, rolling, standing, a few words, moving at the salutes, she throws up a big salute, like a Hitler salute, <laughs> <laughs> waving. The first thing she does every morning, every morning when she wakes up and take her out of the cot, obviously bring her in, change and happy, and then uh, carry her down. We have these big windows in our sitting room, and there's those uh, calves outside our window. And she just uh, throws up the hand like a big salute and starts moving out the window of the gas. <laughs> it's gas, man. She's a proper country woman so far, yeah. Although her mother is very, her mother's a posh water city woman, so she'll try and coax out of her, I'd say. But she's living in the wrong place anyway if she wants to be posh. 
how have you found the experience of becoming a father? Because it's like, it's something that, like, I would like to eventually have kids, but in, in I don't yeah. see it happening, like, planned happening in the next two to three years. Like, what has the experience been like for you? It's a strange one, man, because we, she was planned, but like, very last minute, you know, like, we, we got married in April 2019. And we, were, we only started building our house in March 2019. And we were like, oh, we'd like to be. And we we're like, that's going to take 12 months. And then we we're like, we'd like a bit of time in the house to ourselves, you know, before we start popping out any kids. But, a few um, pillow fights. Yeah. <laughs> the Grony had a, a health scare in that summer, though. And she had like a cyst on her ovary, it turned out. And when they were bringing her into operator, they told her going in, you're going to lose the ovary. And then for whatever reason, they turned out to be able to, to get the cyst off without it. But that was kind of a wake-up call. We were like, ah, you know what, we would like kids. Even though they'd said with one ovary, like, you'll have as many kids as you want. Like, but it was kind of a wake-up call. So we're like, ah, fuck it, sure, we'll try. And then it just it just happened. They were like, oh, shit, what have we done? <laughs> and, uh, but it's been great, man. No, honestly, it's... Um, I was listening to Jordan Peterson recently, actually, and he was like, when you have a kid you realize that you're no longer the most important person in your world. So like they were saying like, hopefully if you have a girlfriend or a wife or a partner or whatever, hopefully they're at least as important as you in your world. But like when you have a kid, you just realize, you know, you can't do anything you want anymore, you know, stay up late, sit outside reading a book. Um, if you're just trapped in a cycle of changing nappies, feeding her giving her a bottle, playing with her, putting her down for a nap. You know, it's just a constant, constant cycle. But no, like it's, it's really given me a new perspective on life. Um, like all I keep thinking about is I can't wait till, can't wait till she goes to school. I can't wait till she has homework. I can't wait till she's able to start doing, reading a few books with me. I can't wait till she starts playing sports, till she starts doing X, Y, and Z, you know, and you start to kind of, you start to kind of live your life through their eyes. I guess you kind of see like, ah, childhood, you know, she has everything ahead of her. Like, you know, you know, you, you were kind of at the stage where we're, we're broken <laughs> and beaten down by adulthood. And uh, I realized, you know, we're going to have to work till we die. But you see through your kids that uh, everything's ahead of them and they can be whatever they want to be. And uh, yeah, it's, it gives you a boost, you know, and like, yeah, it makes you want to, it makes you want to live forever. So you can always see what they're up to, yeah. It's very strange. It's very kind of primal, you know. Because like, I, like I said, I'd always say that, yeah, I'll have kids someday. But actually, I kind of thought I'd never, I, ne I thought I'd never even be able to have them, to be honest. Because I kind of, as you can see now, I have a diseased face. I mean, like, I kind of, I have a terrible immune system. I, I pick up everything. This is like my my 15th cold since August. I just, I'm um, a walking disease. And so I just, and I'm a kind of like a negative person in my negative toward myself you know so I'm always like ah, I won't be able to do this or that you know nothing will, nothing will uh so I kind of I never thought it would happen and uh and uh that it happened so so fast and yeah it's even just a boost to, to myself hey I can do something do you know what I mean <laughs> kind of thing and uh and you kind of see yeah she's she's an empty vessel of potential you know and uh she's ever ahead of her yeah it must be fascinating to see her personality develop as uniquely hers and it must also maybe give you a different perspective on what your parents did for you because I think I think you can't appreciate how good good parents are until you are a parent yourself 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's I, I kind of I um I always kind of to be honest, I was one of those people I always kind of was aware of the good parents I had, you know, and sacrifices they had. I kind of already I was always going to say, especially through my 20s, I was like, oh, my poor parents having to put up with me, you know. Um, and like, and my dad, like my dad, when he was when he was 20, he was working three jobs and, uh, you know, to, to support us. And um, and I couldn't even get one job, you know, so I was and I was like living at home with them and I was I was a drain on them, you know, and I was like, oh, Jesus, my poor parents. So I was kind of felt I, I sympathized with my parents from a, from a, a relatively early age of the the bane that children can be on their lives but um yeah watching fern that's the, my daughter's name like like i said she's a new box of tricks every week uh since christmas and just seeing her like you know and she has she's doing this really cute smile at the moment her whole face like squeezes up like an orange when she's smiling and just watching her develop it is um it's strange like it's human life just growing in front of your eyes and you're like I really don't feel like I'm responsible enough to be <laughs> to be fucking you know making sure this this goes right but um you just see how how innocent they are as well like they just gravitate just towards you so much like they make you feel so much loved you know because all me or Bronya, you know that's my my wife you know she just wants to, to, to hang off us and and even in the last week she um she started to get a bit more independent where like she just wants to play with her toys in the evening and we'll pick her up like for a cuddle and she'll like straight away be trying to like get me down let me down you know and it's kind of like just watching that independence grow already it's a it's a strange feeling man it's a strange like especially i think life was i mean we have it easy these days you know i mean our parents grew up in the 80s it was a completely different place like um like i said my parents were 20 when they got married and they were 21 when they had my my sister and they were paying like we talk about now how hard it is to, to own a house my mother always says like their interest on their house was like 25 percent or something ridiculous like that 25 30 percent something ridiculous like they were working on the clock to pay off that and and uh and to you know to raise their kids so we have it a lot easier these days i think you know which you know we don't think we do but if we uh if we put ourselves in other people's shoes we we'd learn fast enough it's it's such a different world like whenever i talk to my parents like they talk about like my dad's from roscommon and my mother's from galway and both of them moved down to limerick in the mid 80s and i remember my dad used to say like like he got a job in a in a factory out the country and one of the perks of the job was that you'd have a a phone in your house like that was just that was such a a luxury at the time it's it's so crazy how from there to now like we just carry around these smartphones and they used to talk about like mm. like they had three kids raising three kids and like every single month for the last week or two it was down to like beans on toast and stuff like it wasn't every week that you were even eating very well you know what i mean it's like it's mm. a completely different style and standard of life that we have now yeah and like i think well we're too like we're a lot later having kids as well like you know um and it's cost we we still think about it as kids even though we're in our 30s you know, we still think oh uh, you know i want to do x y and z and i'm, I'm not ready to grow up and, and yet you look at our, our parents and they they had 10 year olds at this point in their in their life you know um, 
and life was a lot simpler back then, I suppose, even though it was harder because there was less kind of airs and graces, you know. A lot of us now have, you know, I think social media has, you know, everyone wants to, everyone wants to be a, not a Kardashian, but an Irish version of, of it or something, you know, and we, uh, you know, we don't just go down the pub and have a, have a drink anymore and, and talk to each other. We go down the pub and we sit around each other, texting on our phones or, taking out a picture of it you know it's a it's a strange time i think that's one of the weirdest things in terms of like the development and social interaction like when you make the time and effort to meet up with somebody or a group of people and the phones come out and it's all about capturing the moment so that other people who aren't here they're jealous of the moment but the moment is spoiled by trying to get this perspective on it that it's way better than it is it it's sad when you look at a group uh sitting in a in a pub uh like back in the days when you could go into a pub and everybody is staring at their own little universe and trying it's it's bizarre man do you like when you're raising a daughter do you have like an apprehension or maybe uh even a fear of the fact that Unlike us, like I didn't get a mobile phone until I was probably 16. Like she is going to be ingratiated into this world where social media is nearly just a part of life. Well, yeah, definitely, man. And like, especially for girls as well, because I mean, girls have it tough enough anyway. Um, trying to, you know, I mean, girls, girls are hard on girls and social media, it's such a, it's a competition really. And you know, it's like if you're if you're being bullied, like they always say, if you're being bullied back in the day in school, you got home, you got like twelve hours of a break at least. <laughs> now it follows you home at night, you know. And um, yeah, no, I definitely worry about that. And even just like you worry that social media will stunt their development as well, because like it, it kind of came when we were about. I got a phone I'd say when I was like thirteen, and I remember when my sister was in secondary school. If a boy wanted to talk to her, he had to ring the house phone. Like, and more often than not, my mum or dad would answer, and I'd be like, "Jesus, I never do that." Anyway. But then, <laughs> then when we we were that age, like we could just text people, like, and it made it. It definitely. I got like I still even when I when I started off being an adult, you know, <laughs> looking for work and stuff, and I had to talk on the phone. Oof, like, I used to I used to take notes of how I thought the conversation might go, um, and I'd like write down what I was going to say, like, I, my name is David Pendergast, I'm with X, Y, and Z, I'm talking to you, you know, I'd have that written down on a piece of paper because I, I was so afraid to talk to people from just being used to texting and, like, used to messaging on Facebook or whatever that it wasn't a skill I developed. Um, yeah, so, got, like, even my brother has has children and they're, they're four and two and they are, like, they get my mother's phone when she's mine and they just like swipe, swipe, swipe or on the iPad, swipe, swipe, swipe. And they're watching videos. They're, they're doing ever they're more, they're more technology or technologically advanced than myself. Like, you know, so uh, God knows what kind of a world she's going to grow up into. You know, God knows what kind of work there'll be. God knows what kind of a, an environment and climate will be. God knows what, like, God knows, like, I mean, the world is changing fast now. Even God knows what it'll be like in just terms of, society uh what you can be and what you can't be and what you can say and what you can't say and what's acceptable and what's not you know i mean god knows what she'll be coming home and telling me from school like you know like I, my, my, my grandfather like he used to always drop the n-word 
and like he wasn't an ace, like it was just the fucking the times, you know, he'd always uh <laughs> you know, we might be watching Wimbledon down these house. Look at the 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 the, the inward on telly, you know, he's playing some game. <laughs> and, uh, just as long as he was on, no, he wasn't. Just Do you remember back in the day, Eeny, Meeny, Miny Mo? Yeah. And that was yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's strange. It must be interesting as well, like as a man to think start thinking about raising a daughter you kind of have to see things from a different perspective. Like it's really fascinating that you mentioned social media. Like if you look at boys and how boys bully each other, it's physical dominance, it's threats of physical violence and it's violence where social media is not a good tool for the way boys try to assert their dominance over other boys. But for, for girls, girls are more, in general about reputational destruction if it's bullying Mm -hmm. and social media is fucking masterful for that in terms of excluding people from groups um not liking photos it's it seems like such a minefield and like i i've i've thought about this more and more it's like i i think eventually they're going to have to regulate it, even though it's hard to regulate it, where you shouldn't be allowed use social media until you're a certain age. Like there are some there are some adults that should stay the fuck away from social media as well, because you've seen how competent adults social media can fuck with their mind. But for kids, for kids, I just think it's it's such a it's so detrimental. No, man, it's 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 completely dangerous. I agree with you. And um, like I keep thinking of, uh, you know, you're on the Irish girl. Christ, when was it? Maybe 2008 or nine. She went to the family move to Boston, and she she hung herself. She's getting bullied, bullied in school, and bullied online when she went home. And I just I just keep thinking of of things like you know, like I said, I am an irrational person. I I fucking forecast my mind into all those situations of when Farrell up like and like it's you know sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will hurt forever. Do you know what I mean? And like especially now, words are words are violence these days. You know, so God knows what it'll be like in ten years time. And um, there definitely needs to be some regulation, man, because it's a, it is a fucking weapon. You can destroy someone online. Um, so and we've all just 14, we've all just been sort of funneled into this social experiment where nobody consented to be part of this new thing that we we don't know what the long term effects yeah. are. But everybody's involved in it. It's kind of weird as well. Like uh, it's funny. Like some people like describe it as like like back in the eighties, you might have had a job where you were like an, a data entry person, and now we've just all volunteered part of our time to just be this data entry person where you update your life every so often yeah no it's it's bizarre man it's bizarre and like yeah it's it's supposed to bring us closer together but it's really just a tool to divide us all i mean if you look at like american politics as well in particular like that's fucking it's lethal what goes on over there and half of that is just like disinformation through through fucking social media that's like pitting these these and like it's been weaponized as well like and it just it just and like the thing about like twitter is i think like 11 percent of the population maybe that's the american population use it but like it, it dictates almost what's acceptable in society even though such a small amount of people people use it like and you know this cancel culture is pretty much waged waged through social media like if you make enough noise about it online people say well online is reality these days and and so we need to do something about it but like like most of us are are just living our lives trying to keep the keep the head down and actually 
you know, be normal. It's it's a it's a different universe. Social media. Um, I got off. I got. I look. I, I got off it when I got it off it like two three years ago. I got off everything, deleted everything, and I was happy out, man. And then I just got back on Instagram because I was so fucking bored during the pandemic, and I was like, I wonder what people are doing. And like, look, I got in contact then with yourself again, and I, you know, spoke again with some school friends I hadn't spoken in ages. So it does have positives, but like. I'm in my 30s, like I'm, you know, um, like I can only imagine what, like even my sister, she's a teacher, secondary school teacher. She said phones are a nightmare in school. You're like you're turning your back at the classroom and everyone has the, had the phone out and they're Snapchatting you yeah, and they're taking videos of you yeah, and, you know, you can put all those like fucking faces on you now and just send it around the school. Like um, she said, it's impossible to, to, to teach with, with them. And, you know, when I was in school and she teaches in the school I went to, um, I was 19 when well I did my leaving cert when I was 19 we weren't allowed we weren't allowed to have phones in school like and if you were if you got caught with a phone you were nearly suspended like you know um, and that wasn't that long ago um, you know from from when these phones kind of swept into the rules seemed to relax and, and phones swept in so yeah now it's it's strange and even like you see it in Irish politics as well man it's such a negative place like, um, and people just forget that it's not reality online, but you'll see, you know, the government all through, if you go on, on, on Twitter during the, uh, the pandemic, the government just got slayed every single day on it, like, um, that they're doing a terrible job. And you wonder who are these people? Like, what world are they, what do they expect? Like, you know, it's not an easy fix, um, the pandemic, like, well, it's just a, it's a, even sadly enough, I was watching the late late last night. That is a sad thing to admit. And um, <laughs> the last the last guest on was uh, some young one who oh, her husband was dying. Um, she had three young kids with him, and she was kind of document documenting it all on her Instagram page as a kind of way to grieve. And she um, she was just getting dogs abuse off trolls, saying like, oh, is your husband dead yet? I can't wait till he dies. You should die as well. Or people were saying like, oh, your husband's not even sick. You're fake. Lights. You're a terrible mother. All this stuff. Like, so she, she was on the late, late talking about all the abuse she got over that. Like, so it's just, uh, I think it's because you can hide, you know, you can, you can hide behind it. Like, I mean, I doubt the majority of people would, would say those things to anyone's face if they had the opportunity, you know, so. But that's the thing. It's like if if you talk to somebody face to face and you say something that makes them sad or angry or disappointed straight away, you get social cues where there's feedback. And then if you're if you're a rational, compassionate person, you adjust the way that you're communicating like like online, like Twitter. I haven't really gotten that deep into Twitter I've kind of stayed away from it just because I've never heard anybody who I respect say you know you know what's a wonderful way to spend a few hours just just get in, get involved with people on Twitter and communicate in a limited amount of characters and see what happens I've never heard anybody say that it's a wonderful place to spend your time or interact with people and it's it, like the pandemic has sped everything up where face-to-face interaction is even less than it was 12 months ago but it's it seems to be one of the worst ways to communicate with people. And so much of it is for social approval and being part of 
a group. And like, as, as Jordan Peterson says, these people online, they're finding meaning by being part of a group and going after injustices as they see them. But so much of that online behavior, it, it feels it feels ideological, but it also feels nearly like uh, in a weird way, like a religion, like a new religion of this is the way to do it. Anybody who doesn't agree with us is a heretic and they must be cast out and canceled. It's it's fascinating to watch, but it's scary to think that this is happening in our world and it's it's influencing policy, it's influencing behavior and it's influencing how people see what the world is now. We even saw it in, in the US election, man, you know, a few weeks before um, before the vote, Hunter Biden's laptop turned up and they had all that um, incriminating shit about like getting paid off by the, the, Ukraine, the Ukrainians and whatnot and the deals with China. And the New York Post, which I think is one of the oldest newspapers in America, got their account suspended. Um, their journalists were getting locked out of Twitter. And anyone that shared the the article was coming up like this is this is fake news. But like now, only in the last week, it's all coming out that it actually was his laptop, and it was a legitimate news story. But it was just censored by Facebook, um, and Twitter, which is much more friendly to the to kind of the Democrats than the Republicans. And you know, it, did it swing an election? Probably not. But like, I mean, was there any need to do it? You know, like like I said, I don't think it would have made a difference in the in the in the election, but um, you know, it was still it was a weapon that was still waged. Um, it's it's crazy stuff. Yeah, poor old Joe Biden. He's a uh, yeah, poor Joe. It's a little obvious, man. Nearly, you know. Joe Biden. When you when you look at him and when you listen to him, like I I see an old man. I see a uh, shell. Uh, that's not, a not fragile mean. old man. Like, he did you see fragile, where he? Did you see where he fell up the steps? Yeah. Poor old chap. Like two or three times, don't I? Yeah. It's just I don't know it, and as well, it it nearly feels like everybody in the Democratic Party believes that, like, in maybe in the next twenty four months, there will be a new president. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Should they? They like. <laughs> I don't. I, they say he's like the luckiest president in America. I don't know how, how he, like, got the nomination to even to even run for the Democrats. Like, but he just got such a free pass from the media. Like, do you know, he was heading into Iowa for about five on about five different occasions in the space of a week. He told a story that he got arrested trying to visit Nelson Mandela on what island was he on? Whatever it was, on a trip to South Africa. Um, he told that story about five times, you know, trying to say like, you know, I'm a, you know, obviously tie himself to Mandela and say, you oh, know, I'm civil rights, I'm pro-black, all that stuff. But um, it was a complete lie. He just got lost. <laughs> he just got lost, and it was, he got lost, and the police, uh, the police pulled him over to see where he was going. He was, he was something like two hundred miles away from from where Mandela was being held. Like, he just, he was there on a UN trip or something like that, and he got separated from the delegation. Uh, they took a wrong turn somewhere and the cops pulled him over and like diverted him back to, to where he was supposed to be. But he told that story five times in the space of a week with impunity, do you know? Um, yeah, it is strange that the media have just completely evaded the fact that he's in extreme cognitive decline. 
Yeah, exactly, man. And he ju- he just got such a you couldn't even you couldn't even mention it, you know. Um, it, it was strange. Like they built Trump up to be like this fucking this like Hitler who just must be stopped at a at all costs, even if at the the detriment of like a free and honest press. Uh, but I suppose like, is there ever a free and honest press in America? I mean, it's just money money dominates the corporate media over there, and you know, yeah, it's strange. Like even poor Bernie got like fucking torpedoed. Uh, remember, um, like after he won Nevada, they were like, "Oh, it's like the fall of France. Like the Nazis are the Nazis are sweeping through France, you know." <laughs> Even though he's like he's a he's a Jew and he's had uh, members of his family died in the Holocaust, like and they're referring to his supporters as Bremenshirts, you know. It's uh, yeah, it's a strange, strange. I'm glad, like I mean, whatever you like, whatever you want to say about like the Irish media, it's nowhere near as bad as has like it's not you know it's not dominated by money and by corporations at least so did you hear the thing about amazon lately they were getting a big big pushback recently and um they uh, they were tweeting out loads of shit like uh they they tried there was a lot of stories about amazon workers having to shit in their shit in plastic bags and uh, pissing bottles and stuff and they they started to their social media accounts started to push back out push back against it in like a, a friendly chirpy manner and then they got some like leaked memo from like all the way from the top from Jeff Bezos, who was like, we need to we need to quash these stories, even though they're true. Um, and they, they hired like a, a social media team to specifically uh, go after these stories. But it all, it all blew back up in their face. Man. Um, yeah, but sure, you know, anyway. as somebody who's worked in journalism, like what's your perspective of journalism now versus journalism 10 years ago and where where do you see journalism as a as a a real like a noble pursuit if you want to call it where do you see that going in the next 10 years i think journalism is dead man it's dead it's all clicks now it's clickbait i mean look at you have again not being back to america but you have all these journalists going on about how like they're victimized now and you know online bullying and stuff which is Oh God, I guess that's a complicated one. You know, online bullying is 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 real, but like they're just writing. They're not. They're not really being bullied. They're writing these shit stories, and they're getting pushback from it. And they're they're declaring they're online, and that journalism is being um is being challenged or whatever. It's being you know it's a dangerous occupation. But then there's not one word about Julian Assange, who's actually locked up in like twenty four hour, well twenty three hour solitary confinement in like harsh conditions in in Britain on. You know when all he did was actually break newsworthy stories um like a lot of these journalists in america it's just um uh aggregation you know they're just collecting stories from like news shows and transcribing and putting in a youtube video and you know 10 ways uh donald trump was hitler or you know um that's an article you know what i mean it's it's a very poor standard um and it's all down to it's all down to online media really because People have no attention spans anymore, and it's all down to the clicks and you know clickbait. Like the headlines are so misleading, um, and then you know nobody reads print, which was probably the noble version of journalism, and that's 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 dying a slow, agonizing death. So I uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone do journalism because everyone that does it usually ends up in marketing. Um, cause there's just no money in it, and there's no there's no jobs in it, and there's no there's no real uh, you know. I think the first wave of journalism came after the the Watergate incident, and particularly when the film came out, 
and I'm seen as this like noble, noble thing to do, noble crusade and do actual real investigative work. Um, but if you look at the, the the real journalists, they never get any airtime anymore. Like uh, Jeremy Scale is one of the best journalists around and couldn't get him on television anymore because um, it just goes against the 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 media's kind of the media's narrative of how they want society to be. If you look at CNN and MSNBC at the moment, a lot of their contributors are um, ex-CIA, ex-intelligence workers. And so they're just feeding into a feeding into a narrative of the kind of American empire and there's no there's no pushback at all, you know. It's a it's a strange world. Yeah, it, it is weird where even you look at the mainstream medias in America, like the likes of Fox or is it CNN? And their journalists are getting their information from Twitter. And Twitter is a limited echo chamber of reality. So it's kind of this weird cyclical thing where it's all feeding into each other. And then a lot of people have kind of maybe lost faith in the mainstream media. So so where do people get their information anymore? Like how... Where do you find your information or what, like what sort of sources do you read? To be honest, I, I, what do I, I avoid the news as much as possible, to be honest. Um, I do, I check in on Glenn Greenwald's Twitter page. I don't have a Twitter account, but I just Google his Twitter page. He's a great journalist um, and I see what he's up to, but he's very obviously American based, but I, I avoid the news, honestly, because it's, it's, um, it's just pretty toxic. Like, there's, there's no. Uh, I prefer to live in a bubble. Live it's never, it's in, never the good news. Nah, it's, ne- it's, it's never six one. These are the good things that happen today. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's death bliss, and destruction. That's, that's, ignorance is bliss. Is is my motto. I just prefer to, to live in my own little world and uh, avoid avoid reality as much as possible. Do you know, like even the whole the, the whole like uh, thing about the coronavirus coming out of China, and. Uh, remember a journalist asked like some, um, I think at the start of the pandemic, maybe Taiwan was doing well. And a journalist, I think she might've been a, Thai, a Taiwanese journalist. She asked the, the World Health Organization chap, you know, is that we can learn from, from Taiwan's you know, response to the pandemic. And because the WHO is in bed with China a lot recently, he was like, he just pretended he didn't hear the question. I tried to move on and she like, came back and repeated the question and he just disconnected. <laughs> he disconnected the call because it was done remotely, obviously, because, um, you know, China doesn't recognise Taiwan and he, he, they were, you know, the WHO was so tied up with it, he couldn't, he couldn't respond to a question about Taiwan without, you know, without getting fucked. So that's the kind of the power structure at the moment, you know, just follow the money, you know. It is sad when you realise just like something like the World Health Organisation is so tied up with the Chinese government, like even trying to objectively investigate where the virus came from. And when they released this joint report and immediately it was like, don't look into even the possibility of this coronavirus being leaked from a level four lab in Wuhan, where they study bat coronaviruses. That was just straight away off the table. It was like, don't look at this Occam's razor possibility. Virology lab in, in China is in Wuhan, isn't it? One of and, the only um, ones. Even that, rep- yeah, that report as well. I think like 
the scientists, I think they left in 17 scientists, but they were handpicked by the Chinese. That was one of the conditions. The Chinese had to handpick him and vet him. And like you said, I think they were like kept away from, from certain certain aspects. And uh, I mean, to me, it, yeah, I mean, I have, like I said, I try and avoid the news, so I haven't looked into it too much. But the fact that it's just so, it's it's like, uh, it's like kryptonite to, to even say, I think it might have come from a lab. Like you're immediately looking hexed, you know, you can't, you can't say that you're a racist or whatever, you know what I mean? It's, uh, but that's just the kind of, again, the power of, power of the narratives that were, were fed, you know, because like, like I say that a lot of people are like me, they try and avoid the news and then they might like log on and they'll see a headline and they won't even read that. I never, I just, I do browse, just, I browse through headlines. So most of us are just getting our news from headlines which are misleading anyway, because they're, they're looking for clicks and that's it. And we're the kind of passive population who we just, we go along then with, with everything that we, we read from a headline and we say, ah, oh, that must be, must be right. You know, we don't do any digging of our own or independent thinking really. Because um, we're too busy looking at our phones instead to, you know, look at other people's meals and, you know, see, look at funny memes, you know, so. <laughs> Um, so Dave, just to bring it back, like we met during our time in UL, you studied English and history as well, didn't you? I did for, for my sins. And what was your experience? Yeah. What was your experience of that course? And what is your opinion of studying humanities, uh, a decade past the time when you did? Funny man, like. I think about this a lot and you could ask me you could ask me a different month every year and I give you a different opinion about what I'd like to do in my life I still don't know and at the time I really didn't know but I, I liked English and history in school so I just and I wanted to go to UL because that's where my brother was and he he loved it up there so I just put down that course and then I I immediately regretted it I don't I was thinking about this today I don't think I read in first I read a few books read that Oedipus and uh, read Raymond Carver short story collection that we had to look at one, once upon a time for some reason and then I didn't I didn't read a single book for the for the next three years I I just got all my essays off Wikipedia or Spark Notes Spark Notes got me through college Spark Notes was like if I because like even I I didn't have a laptop I think till the third year and I remember I just used to go in in the morning I'd always read two articles on do you ever read Cracked I just read two oh. random articles that cracked cracks an interesting website. It's just loads of like funny, um, funny articles like on history or weird, weird, the weird world or science or something like that. I'd read I'd read two articles on cracked and then I'd go, right now time to do my work. And I'd go on to spark notes and I'd I'd read the summary. Bizarre. Yeah, but no, I, I realized pretty early on I wasn't going to get, get a job of an English and history degree. And I actually I wanted to drop out at Christmas. In first year and my parents were like well what do you want to do instead and I was like I don't know and they were like well you're not dropping out if you don't know what you want to do and then I actually got okay results that that first semester but of course they didn't go toward my degree so that kind of spurred me on and then I absolutely fell off a cliff going into second year I, I didn't turn up to anything I was drinking five or six nights a week I'd say up there I got insomnia I could not sleep and yeah I could not sleep and, uh, and then we went to Spain, where I led a, 
very healthy social life as well. Um, <laughs> and yeah, no, just went down a rabbit hole, man. I went down a rabbit hole of, of, of doing nothing. And um, yeah, finished college, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do myself. No, I humanities in general, man, I'd say wipe out all those courses. I think, for instance, like even like a journalism degree, if you want to do journalism, it should be like an apprenticeship. Um, I think you could look at half of those college courses that are today to, there today and they should be made apprenticeships. I've thought um, about that more and more as in like, yeah. it's so weird as well when you're, when you're a teenager at that time and it's like the, the narrative is either you're going to go to college and that's clearly the only path in life or you can just drop out of society and learn a trade. Like the way mm. people looked at trades back in the day was oh, like, yeah. Oh fucking he got a trade. Oh Jesus, thank God he's not homeless anyway. Like, it was fucking mad. But like yeah. like now, like I I'm so shit with my hands. I'm so bad at like it takes me fucking five hours to build a, a, a table from IKEA. Like manually, I'm not good. And I I look at people who have learned skills on the job as like that is the way to do it. Like like yeah, it's exactly. weird as well, where like like in even in something like uh like business studies. Like people study business and then a lot of them jump into sales jobs. Sales is completely different than business studies. Mm. I think like ev- everything could have, could have an apprenticeship, man. Like even accounting or, or like, you know, maybe they, you know, but apprenticeships that kind of looked down there, well, maybe not as much anymore, but they were kind of stigmatized a bit. Like, you know, like it was almost like you had to go to college, you know, you had to get a college degree and like yeah i think as well it's a generational thing where it's like like my dad was a a fitter by trade and it's probably he he learned to trade and he physically worked all his life and then he looks at his kids and he's like you want better for your kids so you're like well well what what's better society is telling me college is better like so my kids better all go to college doesn't matter if they're they know what they want to do or they they have an interest in something it's like try to funnel them into college because at least that's what society is telling me to to do with my kids you know what i mean like you said man my dad was like working three jobs when he was 20 and he just wanted all of us to go to college as well um but like you know in england they have like there's just graduate programs everywhere when you come out of college in ireland you just kind of unless you're in business or you're a teacher or a nurse maybe but like if you do any humanities, you're just fucking forgotten about like, um, there's no graduate programs and then nobody will hire you because they're like, well, you've no experience, do you know? So I can't hire you. So you're, and you, that's why I think you need a work experience or, or, or it could be half and half, you know, of a, of a trade or journalism. And I think we're kind of, we're rushed into making a decision when we're that age. Like I, I was thinking like, you know, like what Israel do when you turn 18, you have to do like two years in the army or something like that. But it, it doesn't even have to be the army. It can be like working as a, as a nurse or like, you know, working in an old folks home or, you know, something that gives back to society. I think that could be a good option. Something, Ireland, that, right? something that makes you part of the community and yeah, like, exactly. like a shared struggle. Have you ever read that book, uh, Try by Sebastian Younger? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one of That's my favorite book. books, man. And like it really, it really gave me a, a good insight into what the the human experience is and what what sort of experiences like bond us together and like me and you we've never had a war to fight or a particularly hard struggle that we've had to overcome for the 
for the greater uh, for the greater good of our society or our community and sometimes it feels like when like especially as a man when you are an adolescent and you're approaching adulthood there's no moment or there's no there's no test of fire where now I'm a man there's this mm-hmm. ambiguity like like even you you've had a kid now probably there's days where you feel like am I an adult or what what the fuck is that like Exactly. I love that book, Thrive, um, especially the part about the Native Americans where um, it was a Benjamin Franklin was writing a letter in 1753, giving out like all these um, all these colonists that keep getting kidnapped. We, we pay for them to get them back and they just run off again in the middle of the night to join the tribe because society was so much freer. Like, you know, you're, you're living under the stars, you're, you're not tied down. You're, you're moving with the with the seasons and with the animals and you're living free like you know I you only carry idea. as much property as you can exactly, carry man. on your wealth is an important horse the sign of the sign of success in those tribes giving away your wealth giving away what you got like giving away the best horse to the widow or to the to the sick person you know that was the sign of of a true true leader in, in those tribes just simpler to, you, you only you only kept what you could carry because you're constantly on the move um i thought it was fascinating as well where like let's say in our government or political structure you kind of have two opposing forces where it's like liberalism and conservatism but in tribal times they used to have two different um kind of like chiefs of the tribe depending on what sort of uh interactions were happening so they had a wartime chief and they had a peacetime chief and that makes so much sense as well because you need both dynamics but you need them at the right time as well like you need to know when like let's say people look at conservatism and they think like oh my god like that is such a, a a fruitless thing to have now because we're in a safe time but in times of in times of real danger and war, you need law and order. You need a standing army. You need to be able to defend your borders if your borders are being attacked. Mm. It was also um, kind of like what we were saying about, like, you know, if you were doing two years in the army after you, after you turned 18, like two automatic years or something, there's some way to get back to society. It was like those soldiers in the, in the Native American tribes, like, they were, you know, they went out and they hunted the meat, like, you know, they, they they did buffalo hunts. They 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 went out in the morning and like you know shot a few deer and 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 all the meat was like dispersed equally among the among the tribe. You know, they weren't just soldiers; they were like providers as well. You know, um, you know, it was just a more equal society. Whereas now we kind of, as we accumulate more stuff, we wall ourselves off from everyone else because like I don't need to talk to my friends because I have a TV. <laughs> And a phone that I can just, I can see what they're doing on my phone. I don't actually need to talk to them, you know. He's getting on grand jail. He's posting a picture of himself eating a good meal, you know. So, you know, we're, we're, we've, we've, we've walled ourselves off from everyone, you know. I liked a bit about that book as well. Was there something about, did he mention something about after 9-11 and like the murder rate and the suicide rate, rate in New York City like dropped by like 40% or something like because everyone just came together and felt like a sense of unity you know like we've been under attack let's let's you know we're not we're not we're not different from each other anymore but we're the, we're the one people you know yeah instead of instead of these things instead of these things that we're told 
divide us like sexual orientation or race or gender when you have a shared communal struggle or experience it just seems to bond us together because the human experience until very very recently has been a fucking tough slog and a human alone Mm. in the wild is a dead human yeah absolutely man what's that thing Joe Rogan always says it what is it fuck me hard people make soft times soft times make hard people hard people make soft times that kind of thing yeah hard men make easy times easy times make weak men weak men make hard times but hard times make hard men it's it's this cyclical like and like like we have it so easy now where the things that we worry about are the things that we worry about online are small things in the greater scheme of how far we've come have you um have you read any more of sebastian junger's work did you read his book war no um no i haven't like that now man it's kind of he you know the bit obviously in in tribe he touches on uh, he spent time in afghanistan and with the soldiers basically that the the war book is his whole experience of being out there you'd like that a lot um and he wrote the perfect storm as well i know um, yeah when i saw that i was like wow yeah and that's a great book i bought that i bought that book when i was probably in school and i was like i love that film and i was like oh it's just gonna be like the film but it's not because obviously they they don't know what happened out on the boat like so he just kind of he goes into like past examples of what it would be like to be shipwrecked what it would be like to be on a a ship that was sunk what we like to be lost at sea and he just goes through it like historically like using like real examples of other shipwrecks and of people who survived it like he goes into like detail what i would like the whole experience of drowning like you know he goes through through all that so you really feel like you're like can experience what those lads out on the boat would have went through in their final moments like he 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 breaks down drowning like fucking minute by minute you know the whole thing like so he's a great writer man He's a great writer. I think when he was on Rogan, did he tell a story like of when he was working a summer job in between college, he was like digging, digging ditches, was he or something? Like and they all feels like slow down, kid. Some of us had to do this for, for the rest of our lives, you know. Uh, I love that that little story, like you know, of just you know, like getting carried away with yourself, you know. One other thing that I found fascinating in tribe is that in in a tribal community things like selfishness and cowardice were things that were punished whereas selfishness in modern society like like with the the financial meltdown in 2009 2010 the people who profited most from that in a tribal society if you were to extract that much resources from the community you would have been severely punished but so many people were able to do that with basically like a, a vague indifference from everybody it's it's so bizarre yeah no the, the whole tribal and like i'm kind of going a bit off topic now because they're they were more of a civil like they were like a few million of them i was like a hundred thousand dinkas i was only reading the story during the week about dinkas just the whole kind of rituals that like these kind of tribes and civilizations had um did you ever hear about this inca mummy there was three Inca mummies that were found in 1999 up on the top of the Andes near the Argentina and Chile border, I think. 
but they were so they were child sacrifices but they were just so well they were the most the best preserved mummies in the world just from the the cold conditions on top of the mountain but uh, basically they were sacrificed to uh, you know for like to keep watch over their people the the incas didn't believe that they were really dying they were just going to watch over um watch over the people from the top of the mountain like gods um but they drugged it was a whole process like they prepared them for about a year or two where they like cleansed them and they and they got like the best food the best of everything for this whole year as they were being prepared to be sacrificed um and then they drugged them uh they drugged them with like drink and coca um and buried them alive basically wow. <laughs> and um they were like 15 the, the three that they found i think your one was like 13 and then there was like a seven and a six-year-old um, but they're all just found they're in a sleeping position like they obviously passed out from all the drugs and drink and and just died up of the of the of the exposure or whatever or of the, the conditions up there but um and the the the, the child the, the child the child sacrifices they were selected from just villages all over the empire based on their physical perfection so like you know you think you have problems now like you know you know <laughs> you fucking snapped up you fucking there is a thing as well where like when i read tribe i romanticized their existence so much but the native americans were constantly at war with each other and like especially like like a, a tribe like the is it the comanches were like the oh, yeah. yeah like it's it was a brutal existence as well but the thing that attracts me so much is just every day it sounds like there was meaning in what you were doing like there mm. are so many days in modern life where you're just like what is the point like what is going on like what is what is this existence like it's bizarre like you know what native americans like i think once you turn once you turn six if you're a boy you were like basically pulled from from the women and you were basically put into warrior mode where you're just like shooting arrows uh riding horses doing endurance tests you know you're basically being geared from manhood from a young age um and what i like about the native americans as well i definitely do romanticize their existence um, and they were very violent to each other when they got the opportunities. But a lot of their wars, like they were seasonal, you know, like I think winter, they just camped. I think they did a buffalo hunt in the spring. Summertime was for war and another buffalo hunt in autumn. And most of the war, like there was no pitched battles. It was all just basically raids on their campsite. And what they wanted most was just horses. So, you know, killing, you know, they never killed each other in, in, in great numbers um and you know, the whole counting coup like it was seen as a bigger you were more of a man if you actually went up and touched your enemy and and got away from them than if you just killed them outright you know um but yeah if they if they if they like if they got a fella on his own all right they'd like cut his balls off and shove it in his fucking mouth and stuff and tie him to a wagon wheel and whatnot and, and like that was a bit harsh because i think the reason they they believed how you died was how you would wander the afterlife so basically like they're cutting off your balls you're not gonna have a fucking dick in the afterlife which is kind of harsh like but uh if only they could have banded together man do you know um like the worst thing about reading all those history books is when uh when they're being hunted and defeated the fucking the, the americans are being led by fucking other indian but indian tribes who are tracking tracking down the lads do you know what i mean um but i read a, a cool story about red cloud do you ever hear red cloud no he was a sioux um he fought red clouds war i think it was 1866 to 68 it's the only time america were defeated basically they they sued for peace and they gave 
the Sioux, everything they asked for. It was the only time it ever happened. Now they just rolled back on it as soon as they got that opportunity. But um, there's a story about him where some, maybe a crow, I can't remember, an enemy tribe, and I, they found some fella, he was drowning in a river. And Red Cloud swam in after him and pulled him ashore and just slit his throat. You know, he saved his life just so we could have the opportunity to kill him. Like, they were vicious bastards to themselves, you know. But uh, no, I definitely realize that living man. Do you know what? You, did you read The Empire of the Summer Moon about the Comanches? One of the lads, uh, my buddy Nigel, actually bought me the book. I've, I've yet to, I, I have a struggle at the moment with physically reading. Like actually, oh, like yeah. like just reading pages on a book. I, I'm like, it's one of those like kind of like I suppose goals for the next couple of months where I'm like, I want to just physically read a couple of books. Like, but um, I have it, but I haven't read it. A good book to read actually is the heart of everything that is. And that's about Red Cloud, Red Clouds War, but it's just it's written so well. Like it's written very creatively. It's almost like a it's almost like a novel the way it's written. But um, Crazy Horse was in that war. It, it, it culminated in this big battle. The it's called the Fetterman massacre um the indians call it the battle of the 100 in hand because there was um what's that thing called when you're born with both genitalia you're dick in a vagina yeah there was one of them in their tribe but they were held in like this really high position in the tribes because they were seen as this kind of magic men um and he predicted they were going to have uh they were going to kill 100 white men in this battle but they only killed 81 in the end but uh i think outside the outside the battle of little bighorn it was the the, the biggest um, the biggest battle but Crazy Horse was used as a decoy in that battle they were trying to draw the Indians out from their fort to attack to ambush them and so there was like three or four riders Crazy Horse was one of them it took, it took place in December so it was in the snow really cold weather um, and he was trying to lure the Indians or the Americans out and they were kind of taking the bait but then they'd stop you know they were like what's going on here and he actually got off his horse and he took out a knife and he started like cutting the ice off his horse's hoof his horse's hoof as the bullets were like popping up all around him and he just stayed there right cool, like right calm. And eventually they came in closer um, and they got him to the ambush site and wiped, wiped him out. I think they said something like the battle took 40 minutes and they fired 40,000 arrows in that 40 minutes. So, yeah. Yeah, good living. What I think is fascinating about the Native American culture as well is that, yes, they had times when they experienced brutal war, but... The men who fought in these wars, when they came back to the tribe, they had rituals where they would nearly confess what happened to them in battle. And it helped them deal with the trauma that they experienced because they had to adjust again to peace times. And like that's mm-hmm. something that Younger talks a lot about, where soldiers now, they fight a war on foreign soil that the people in the country that they're fighting for don't really understand or a lot of the time don't even care about. And when, when you come back to your society, you feel like this outsider who's experienced something so, I suppose, intrinsic to the greater human experience throughout history and PTSD and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's very, very hard to, reintegrate yourself into a society that doesn't look at what you did as a sacrifice for the wider community as well mm. yeah um like you've seen you know what in Hurt Locker as well like I think that was a film that touched on it where 
they just get the buzz as well, man. They get the adrenaline. They just keep having to go back because they can't fit back into society because, number one, society doesn't understand them. Number two, society is boring. There's nothing to live for. There's nothing to, there's no purpose. You know, you're punching a clock for 12 hours, 12 hours a day in a dead-end job and, you know, living for the weekends and then fuck all, you know. So, um, no, yeah, it's interesting. I like all the, um, you know, the Native Americans as well. They had, like, this association of pain with spirituality, you know, and like the more you could like inflict pain on yourself, the closer the Sundance. To a vision, yeah, like they're fucking vicious. They like they pierce a, they pierce your skin and like hang you to a tree or something. They and have to dance until the flesh pulled off or something. So I, th- I think, I think the the sun, so like you know, like the Sundance Film Festival. That's named mm-hmm. after the Sundance ritual, where I think it was like a coming of age thing for men in the tribe, where you'd you'd get these. Uh, nearly hooks and you'd you'd insert them into the flesh around like your your chest and i think i think it was something like you had to continuously lean back until you were free of it but it was yeah, you it was doing a lot of damage you had to well. dance you had, yes you, you had to and you had to go through the pain you'd pull you'd, you couldn't stop until you either passed out or you ripped yourself free from the from the hooks but even like i think um sitting bull before the battle of the little bighorn he went off onto a hill and i think he cut like he cut like 50 pieces of flesh out of his right arm um and then passed out and had a vision of basically white white people pouring into their valley and some big you know the indian god saying i give you these because they have no ears and that like you know got the lads <laughs> ready for a fight you know but this whole idea of just even just going off and starving yourself you know starving yourself dehydrating yourself isolating yourself anything to have a vision and kind of get in touch with your a deeper a deeper meaning of life get in touch with uh you know the other side whatever's out there you know which uh i suppose it was the drugs as well the drugs didn't the drugs helped as well it's uh interesting there that you mentioned fasting um so like i wouldn't be particularly religious but um a couple of years ago i went up and did uh the lockdog pilgrimage with uh, my mother which is uh three days up in donegal um the first night you don't sleep at all you stay up and you walk around and you pray and i did uh, a three-day fast while i was there like a lot of people on the island you just eat once a day but I just said, fuck it, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of really? autophagy and just seeing seeing what happens there. Have you heard of autophagy? No. So, so there are a couple of different stages when you enter a fasted state. So within the first 24 hours, um, a lot of the, the carbohydrates that you convert to glycogen like your, your glycogen stores deplete. So then you move on to burning fat. And after about 48 hours, you enter a stage that's called autophagy. And autophagy is, this is pure bro science, but basically the, the bad or damaged cells in your body are used as fuel. So you, you, your body takes these damaged cells and re- repurposes them as good cells so you actually you get rid of 
the bad parts of yourself, if that makes sense. And like fasting is something that like the human experience, like if you look at throughout history, we've only had a surplus of food since basically World War II. Like we are incredibly well adapted to going long periods of time without eating. But these days it's like you never experience that. And the health industry is never going to promote you know what you should do? You should just stop eating because there's no, you're not selling anything to anybody. You're actually, there's not, there's no money to be made from fasting, but it's one of the most beneficial things you can do for your health. Yeah, no, I'd love to, I, I, I would love to do something like that fast just to, you know, like, did you have any like spiritual moments while you're fasting? Like any, any strange <sighs> So, so again, like I, I wouldn't be particularly religious. Like I was raised Catholic and I think during those three days, it probably wasn't uh, a long enough time to enter any sort of a, a, a psychedelic state, if you want to call it that. But what I did find on the island was that because you were away from your phone and you were just left alone for long periods with your thoughts, it was a great time just to get a bit of um, clarity on maybe things that had happened or a little bit of time away from the rush of life to actually go, okay, well, what's important to me now? So while I didn't have any like profound experiences, I did think that the experience in general, like whether you're religious or not, it was incredibly beneficial. And like the Lockdown pilgrimage has ran since before the famine. The only year that it was cancelled was last year. Like it's amazing. Yeah, I would be religious now. I I kind of I believe in it all. And but then again, I believe in everything kind of I, you know, I believe in like UFOs, ghosts, <laughs> um, you know, reincarnation. I believe in everything that contradicts each other, you know. But I do, I do love those kind of those. I had like my grandfather died um, last May, and uh, I found I, it was during the pandemic. He didn't die of coronavirus, or anything, just, um, and it was about it was a few weeks before before Fern was born, and like there was a lot of like clashing information about whether it was safe for pregnant women, you know, uh, coronavirus. So Grand was staying away from it, and I was. I tried to stay away as much as possible as well. And I didn't really get to, to grieve him. Um, because you know, in Ireland, you die in the barrier straight away. So like he died on a on a Monday morning and, and I was down at the house. I brought in the coffin on, on Monday night and I, I got to go in and see him there for about 10 minutes, but there was a lot of people there. Went back the next day and there was a, a good gathering um for the for the funeral prayers. So I didn't even get to see him because there was such a crowd in the in the room where he was. So I was like, you know, that kind of night it hit me. I was like, you know, he's, he's going to be buried tomorrow morning. I'm never going to see him again. Um, so I was like, I'm, I'm going to go down to the house early before before anyone gets there. You know, we were all, he was the, the burial was 11, I think. So we were told to be there for 10. So I was like, I'm going to get down there for nine. Even actually, I tried for half eight, but I got down there around nine and I, just to get some time alone. And I hadn't, I hadn't, I used to cry a lot when I was small. I was, a, I was the cry baby and, I think I have a social, you know, I've kind of, I find it very hard to cry now. I, even though tears, I'll be crying on the inside my, and my head will be fit, feeling like it's going to pop from the tears and the pressure of the tear ducts, but nothing will come out. But anyway, I got into the room, I had it myself finally, and I was just chatting to him in my head. And it was a, it was the hottest day of the year. 
and um, there was a lot of photos around around the room of him and uh, I was just chatting away to him and I started to get I was upset and I was like I'm, gonna, I'm finally going to get that re release the tears are going to come and you know I was chatting away to him and uh, just as I was about to cry next thing this this photograph fell over behind me um, and I looked over and I went over and picked it up and it was a photo of my granddad and my grandmother um, and like I looked around there was there was no window open that a breeze could have come in and knocked it there was no draft coming through the door like I said it was a hot state of the year there wasn't a breeze um, and so I just took that as that was his way of saying to me uh, you know don't be don't be worrying about that and I'm, I'm, I'm never being happier I'm with, me, I'm with your grandmother again you know um, and I know a lot of people would say there's a reason for how that photo fell over you know maybe you imagined it or whatever but I always believe in those those signs um, and maybe maybe I look for him too much but I believe he was communicating to me and um, funnily enough as I said um, my daughter was born less than a month later so he never got to meet her and I had this really weird dream about only a few weeks ago it was one of those dreams again I feel so real um, and we were, we were driving into into our house, um, bringing Fern home from the hospital. Um, and there was a, my granddad was sitting on the step outside our house in a suit, but it was a younger version of him. He was about 60. And as soon as the car was pulling in the driveway, he hopped up off the step. And like, I didn't even get a chance to open the door. He opened the door and he wasn't speaking, you know, there was no words between us, but he, he he opened up the door and he just put his hands out straight away and like give me give me the baby and I, I passed him passed Fern over to him and he just took her off her straight away and he was just walking around and like happy out and rocking her um, and because I was used to my granddad being my granddad as in old I like well, I was out with the car following him like behind him in case he was going to fall but like he was a younger man he was strong again he was a he was a younger man and he was decked out in his suit and all all he wanted to do was was to be with the baby. Again, you could just say that's a funny dream and it doesn't mean anything, but again, I believe in all sorts of things. I'm open to everything. So I took it as a way of maybe after 10, it was 10 months after he had died, and maybe he just figured out I can communicate to the dreams now or something, you know, and, and he, he came back to see the baby or something. I know that's, I believe in a lot of strange things. And as I said, I believe in things that would contradict the other thing that I believe. So <laughs> I'm just open to everything, I guess. Yeah. I think human beings need meaning and mm. people find meaning in different things. Like I, like I wouldn't be somebody who vividly dreams that often, but if somebody is, is somebody who would experience a lot of vivid dreams, I love listening to somebody's dreams and kind of deconstructing or asking questions like, what do you think this meant? Or what could this mean to you? Like, I, I definitely believe that there's a, a genuine power to dreams and you can find extreme meaning in dreams. Oh, I love dreams. If I, if I can remember a dream, I'll always nearly write it down so I can look back on it later on. And sometimes I just have vivid dreams where I don't even have to write them down. I can just recall them like that. I used to have a, a recurring nightmare all through my teens, I'd say, even into my early 20s. Anytime I had a nightmare, it was the same nightmare. I was on Clonay Strand, which is beach just outside Dungarvan, and I was there with my dog. And next thing, place just darkened and uh, the sea got swept out you know just sand everywhere the sea just got swept out and people started panicking and we could look out and you see there's this big fucking tsunami going and I was like oh shit 
and everyone starts pegging the back to the car park and I pick up the dog and I'm running I'm running back towards the beat or the car park and next thing the dog wriggles out of my arms and starts pelting down the open beach because all the water's been sucked out heading towards the tsunami and I'm like fuck I can't leave him behind and I'm running and I'm running I'm running after him and I'm in my head I'm like if I turn back now I can still make it back to the car park and get out of here but I couldn't leave the dog behind and eventually I'm like I'm going to get it I'm going to get it and I pick up the dog and just as I pick it up and cuddle into it, I look up and like the wave is upon me and I'm like, oh, fuck. And then just before it hits me, I always wake up. I had that dream. I had that dream about 10 times, I'd say, in about 10, 10 years. Yeah. yeah. What do you think it means to you? I always took it. And again, I was a, a very different person back then. I was in a, I'm more, more comfortable in my own skin now. I always took it off that I was just an inevitable fuck up <laughs> and that I, I couldn't do anything right. You know, I couldn't even hold on to the dog to get out of danger and then I, I couldn't even have the the ruthlessness to leave the dog behind to save save myself um i always took it like that um there's another weird dream i had I only had it once very vivid and uh i was in choppy wars and i was a, i was like a world war ii pilot and it was it was rain and it wasn't a storm, but it was rain and it was it was it was it was choppy waters. And my I don't know how I got there, but assuming like my plane had just ditched. And next thing this submarine submerges and I'm like, I'm saved. And they bring me on board and it's it's a German, turns out to be a German U-boat. And I'm huddled in the corner and they like give me blanket and they give me oranges to to eat and they give me a warm cup of tea and have a little teapot there on a tray. And I'm thinking like, oh, I'm all right now. And there's like these three or four officers huddled around chatting. And I'm like drying off in the corner, just sucking on the oranges and drinking the tea and thinking, I'm safe, I'm safe. And then they kind of make a decision and one of them just pulls out his rifle and, or his, his, his revolver and starts walking over towards me and I realise they're going to shoot me in the head. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I pick up the tray and then I wake up. You always wake up before you die in a dream, do you know what's that? But um, yeah, I took that one to be maybe a past life. <laughs> You know, um, just because it felt so real, and I'm terrified of flying, and I'm terrified of water. So I always like kind of connect. Maybe I, maybe that happened to me in a past life. Both you dreams know. seem to have themes of coming face to face with your mortality as well, mm-hmm. and like even the yeah. fact that, like you talked about your grandfather passing. Like I just think it's so fascinating with human beings that we're always shocked when somebody dies but it's the one of the only certainties in life. And we're all oblivious about our own mortality. Like nobody wants to contemplate or at least sit with the idea that our lives are finite. And like, I, like one of the things I enjoy doing, another strange thing, I love hanging around, not hanging around, I love visiting old graveyards and walking around the tombstones. And actually, one of my first few days with Grania, there's an old graveyard in Glossony. I brought her there. Because I love just walking around the tombstones, man. You see, so many people died young. So many people were widowed young. So many people had children die young. And also, like, it's an old graveyard, so everyone's like 1700s, 1800s. And they're just forgotten about. Even though they were young people like us once. But, like, in 30 years' time, some people will never remember us as young people. We'll always just be old people to them. And then in a hundred years' time, they won't even remember we ever existed. We'll just be a name on a gravestone if they ever even stumble across it. Like our, our lives are so short and forgetful. Like I was just like those people in the 1700s, 1800s that lived in Colossendy, you know, 
nobody remembers who they were like what's it all about you know what's the point of it but uh and even like when you know even prince philip died last night obviously he was like he looked like that but like you forget he was a young man as well like you know um and they were showing pictures of him last night when he was young and you know everyone was young once even i have pictures of both my grandfathers in my this is my what i do me work in my office here and I both, both of them when they're, when they're young, when they're about in like their 20s or 30s, because I think it's nice to remember that they were young. They weren't just the feeble old men we remember them as, you know, they were they were strong, strong, important men at one point in their lives who were trying to put bread on the table, who were trying to wonder, you know, maybe worrying about the next paycheck, worrying about the same things we worry about now. But yeah, we forget that they were ever... We forget that they ever even lived, really. Even when they're alive, we forget that they ever even lived. We just see them as old men. So life is life is funny, you know. I think it's fascinating as well how so much of our day-to-day experience is in our head and it's playing out scenarios like, oh, if I meet this person, how is that interaction going to go? Are they going to remember this thing that I did five years ago to them? And is that going to influence the way that they look at me and oh my god what if tomorrow this thing happens at work like how how will i possibly deal with this thing that i've dealt with 10 times before but i disregard all of the times that i've overcame that certain thing or what's going to happen when everything reopens like are we going to go back to normal am i going to be able to do things in my life that i appreciated before like so much of our our lives and experience are dwelling on things that either never happen or if they do happen they're never as bad as we think in our head i think the things you, you dwell on you you fucking you nearly will them into existence just by dwelling on them so much you know if you think you're going to make a mistake you, you'll inevitably nearly make that mistake because you think about it so much but even like i remember when i first started in my my current job first few months man i used to have like nearly a pit of anxiety in my stomach logging on every morning thinking like is today the day i'm going to be found out is there going to be an email in my inbox now saying you fucked up this you fucking idiot or you know am i going to get found out today you know you just have this like you worry about the stupidest things the smallest things you know um and you just yeah like you know life is it's funny you know like i said we were talking about the tribe stuff earlier on like it's and we definitely do romanticize it but God, there's a lot to be said for not having a job <laughs> if it's not that important in society. Unfortunately, it is these days. Um, Would you yeah. naturally be somebody who overthinks a lot? Oh, man, I, I can. Like, I have 100 conversations with myself every day and I work through scenarios in my head nonstop and they're always the worst scenarios. It's always a worst case scenario um, because I try and prepare myself for the worst thing to happen. Um and also, like, I've always been, like, shy and I've always been nervous and I've always kind of never been too comfortable in my skin, especially, like, I'm not a social person. So I get very anxious around other people. And I'm like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I say this and they think it's stupid? Or what if they ask me something and I, you know, you know what I mean? And so you just, you overthink everything. I think when you're kind of introverted, you, you spend a lot of time in your own head planning for Armageddon. <laughs> you know so um because we're in a society where you kind of have to be around people um so i, I i've pandemic the pandemic's not been too bad you know um especially the first lockdown i was like Phew, all the time in the world to myself to just 
you know, nobody's allowed to come near me now. I can just bury my head in the book and a cup of tea. And yeah, yeah. How did you get into the life coaching, Kev, actually? Like, was it through your own maybe investigation of who you were and your own? Yeah, like, like maybe. So, so for me, like, let's say if you bring it back to uh, when we were working and teaching in Spain, I, mm. I love the idea of helping people develop at that time. And after Spain, I moved into uh, sports coaching. So I, I coach soccer in America. And again, I, I love the idea of just trying to help people develop or become better. And like, it's amazing when you watch kids play sport and like on the training pitch, they might be nervous about something. And then like an amazing event happens and like they win, they win the game by scoring the winning goal in the last minute. And you see like how they, how it those like adverse experiences change them as a person for the better. And they realize that a lot of their limitations are kind of self-inflicted. And so for me, in work i remember i was doing a job and I, I was just very unsatisfied and unhappy in the job it was like a, a business intelligence role and i just used to think like is this is this it like is like what's what's next like i don't like this but what is next for me and what happened is straight away i think i think a lot of people do this as well where if you're in a job that doesn't satisfy you the first thing you think is oh well it's the company so i'm going to look for outside because this is the only thing I think I can do now I'm only a business intelligence person and you look outside the company for other business intelligence roles like that that was my first um my first uh, mental strategy and I I arranged to meet up with a, a good friend from home um who who originally helped me um get onto a grad program, but kind of looking at my CV and kind of going, well, I used to look at my experience up to a point before I got onto a grad program going, well, I haven't really done a real job, but he was able to look at it and go, well, you've done all these things within a job that are completely real parts of any job. And I was a bit lost at the time. And I, I went to him for answers because I was like, he helped me out before he was able to guide me in the right way. And I, I remember we had a chat and I came out of the chat so frustrated because all he had done was ask me questions. Like I had, I had went into, went into the conversation going, right, I'm going to come out with some serious answers here. I'm going to come out with some serious guidance. And he put it all back on me, asking me like, what sort of stuff interests me? Like, what would you like to do? Where would you like to be? And at the time it pissed me off. But over the next couple of days, I started to think more and more like yeah like why why the fuck was I going to somebody else for this external validation of the stuff that I was already maybe intrinsically interested in and at that time then I remember a big a big move for me was <clears throat> you know when you kind of get stuck in a rut and you're like like what I have now is kind of all I'm capable of and then you become a little bit more risk averse and what happened for me was within the next couple of days, I was offered a job internally that involved sales. And I'd never worked in sales before. And I was kind of like, fuck me. Like, I don't think I'd be cut out for sales. Like, and the person who wanted me to take the job, he, 
he basically said, like, listen, I, I've seen what you're doing day to day. Like, I think it's just a waste of your talent. Like, I think I think you'd really be suited to this. And I I said it to him in the office. I was like, would you would you give me like even the weekend to think about it? And he was like, um, yeah, you know, but I'll, I'll need to know fairly soon. And I remember I went out and I sat in the car and I was just like, like, this is an, I, I was looking at the opportunity of moving into something that was challenging as like, oh, this is an impossibility. Like I, I can't bridge that gap from what I'm doing now to what he thinks I'd be good at. And it nearly just kind of slapped me in the face where I was like, fuck me, man. I'm in my mid twenties. I have literally nothing to lose in my life. And if I'm terrified to take an opportunity at this age, like where the fuck am I going to be in five years? Where the fuck am I going to be in 10 years in terms of like satisfaction with life? And I, I walked back into the office like 20 minutes after I'd sat in the car and I just said, Do you know, what? put me down for that job. Like I'll, I'll, I'll fucking take that job. Let's make it happen. And after that, it kind of gave me the confidence to go, well, don't just be satisfied with a mediocre life or like a, a two out of five or a three out of five existence. And then I started looking into the idea of, well, like, what do I love to do? I, I love, like, I've always loved trying to develop other people. And I, I was interested in personal development myself as well. But after that, then just because as well, my friend had had that type of conversation with me, I started to realize that it was more of a coaching conversation. And then I think there was probably a little bit of um, serendipity where I heard of what life coaching is versus what therapy is or what counseling is. And after that, I kind of just said, well, fuck it. Like, why not? Like, like what, like literally what is the worst that can happen by going and studying something that intrinsically you're interested in? And as well, I think, I think I was probably a little bit put off by my college experience in UL where like as we were talking about before a lot of my time in UL was fucking spark notes and just get the essay done and don't really engage in class and I hated the idea of what I what always used to bother me in, in UL was like if somebody if somebody would ask a question and your my my initial response is don't don't uh, don't ask me the question because I don't I don't want to answer I don't feel I have the confidence to answer and so I probably had a little bit of that in my mind, but I remember as soon as I walked into the, the coaching course, first of all, the, the class was incredibly, an incredibly warm, friendly atmosphere when you walked in, like they were all complete strangers, but straight away, I was able to nearly engage positively and answer questions with interest, which I had never really done in UL, if that makes sense. And I think as well, like, what's always really valuable is that if you're always surrounded by the same people, your limitations are kind of imposed as well by their expectation of you. Like I am this person around uh, this group of people. And like with our time in Spain, what Spain gave me was a chance to not reinvent myself, but maybe just kind of see myself a little bit more clearly for what I was. No, I wasn't Kevin from Limerick. I was Kevin in Spain with new people and you can kind of build yourself in a different way. And I did probably a similar thing when I went to America. Nobody knew me. So I was who I was then, not all this 
bullshit that I was carrying around with myself. And again, similarly in the coaching course, you have a chance to be yourself now, not your life experience, if that makes sense. I think what you said there as well, like we, we box ourselves in so fast. Like we think just because we're out of college now, we're stuck on this career path when like, and we're afraid to go back. I'm afraid to go back to school at like 28 because we're like, oh, I'll be fucking 33, you know, one or two when I graduate. And I, you know, I should have a house and I should be married by then, you know. We box ourselves into these careers where we're not happy. And just because we forget that, like, you have to work till you're 66. Like, do you know, that's about 30, 40 years. Like, why do you want to be, you know, for the sake of studying something for a year or two or three, would you not just do it rather than be stuck in something you're not happy doing? The thing that I always try to remind myself is I'll never be younger than I am right now. Mm-hmm. So, so, so if there's anything that I want to do, this is the time to do it when you've the, cause like enthusiasm wanes over time. Like I, like if I'm interested in something, I will try to jump in and get obsessed with the thing. But I know myself that the longer I delay a decisive action, the more atrophy that decisive muscle gains if that makes sense like even just before the the pandemic kicked off like i tried stand-up comedy and i got into brazilian jiu-jitsu and they were two things where i was like for maybe a year two years i was i loved comedy like i was obsessed with what what stand-up comedy was and the art form like i really really appreciated the art form and jiu-jitsu as a martial art i love the the cerebral aspect when people would talk about it how it was nearly like a game of chess match yeah chess with your body and you're learning Mm -hmm. a new kinetic language and so i was really really happy that i experienced those things before the choice was taken out of my hands like i i would have had so much fucking regret this year if if it had been 13 months since the start of the pandemic and I was still looking at five minutes of my now irrelevant comedy set and I'm like why the fuck didn't I at least try it yeah like even like man you know it's in the the pandemic as well like um you know my job is a corporate writing kind of you know very you know it's there's not much of a creative outlet for it like but uh in the pandemic I I started up a local history blog with uh, one of my school friends who I hadn't seen for 20 years and I just, uh, I got Grania to message her because I wasn't on Facebook. I just got Grania to message her on Facebook for me out of the blue. Um, and I didn't have the history blog in mind. I just wanted to ask her. Uh, I knew she had this book from when we were at primary school that she shared with me. And I wanted to see if she sent it to me again because I really had a book to get. And I just kind of went from there. And we started, we've been, we started the blog there in June 2020. And we've just been uh, writing like stories on, on curiosity history since and it's just a great creative outlet for me. And it's just from, it's a, it's a change of pace from the job because I love writing. Um, but the writing I'm doing in, in work isn't really the, the writing I enjoy trying to do, do you know? Um, what sort of stories have you written about? Well, we just, we actually just want a grant. Um, you know, it's the decade of centenaries. Um, so I think every county council had like a grant, a tree grant that they were giving away for something to commemorate like the War of Independence or Civil War. Um, so we just got a grant there of two and a half grand to produce a booklet on this IRA leader from Clarosity. 
Uh, we wrote, we've written about him, um, man of the GA club, um, the old graveyard that I mentioned, diving into that history. But um, the IRA lad from Colossum, he's a very interesting story. Um, everyone kind of knows about him growing up. Like he's kind of like a, you know, like folklore status almost. He had this very heroic death. Um, there's a place called the Burgery Ambush, where basically they'd ambushed the British the night before. And then George Plunkett, uh, was down from Dublin headquarters, um, you know, Joseph Plunkett's brother. And he was trying to, trying to, he was just kind of sussing out the, sussing out the, they were up there. And he was like, we need to go back to this ambush site because there's a lot of guns left there. And they were all like, it's going to be suicide. Like the Brits are going to be out, out you know, out, you know the area first. But Plunkett insisted they went back. Um, and just as they were walking across the field to the ambush site, the Brits were there, spotted them and opened fire and two Colossal lads were killed. Um, Pat Keaton is the fellow we're writing about. He was the second fella. His childhood friend, Sean Fitzgerald, was the first fella killed. He was in England. Um, but Pat Keaton had been in the IRA since like 1917. And there was a price of £400 on his head for capture or alive. And so in, in January 1921, just two months before the ambush that, where he died, the stress was getting to him. His family home was getting raided constantly. So he faked his own death. He had himself prayed for the local church um, and word went around that he'd been killed and it reached this Fitzgerald fella in England. So he heard that one of his best friends from when he was a child was dead. He came home for the funeral, realised, oh, he's actually alive. He's hiding out in the mountains with the IRA. He enlisted the IRA. His first battle was this burglary ambush. They're walking across the field. He gets hit by a bullet in the neck and jaw, killed instantly. And Pat Keaton, who had faked his own death, which ran to his side to try and check was he okay. And he got hit in the stomach by a dumb dumb bullet and died, died eight, eight hours later. So it's like a, a cruel twist of fate that their stories were, you know, so entwined and their deaths were just like, you know, nearly kickstarted two months prior by this like this rumor. You know, it's a, it's a strange fate. I find that very fascinating. You know? Just that idea of, you know, you can't escape your fate, you know. Would you look back on that time again and kind of look at it uh, in a romantic sense because they had a shared struggle and so, like, at the time, the British Empire was a behemoth. Like, the idea of Ireland being able to free themselves from the tyranny of the British Empire seemed an impossibility at the time, but through guerrilla warfare tactics, they were able to overcome it. No, that definitely, like, and, and like some of the, like I said, Pat Keaton, that's the fellow we were talking about, he, he, he was known for his dating philosophy, but like we, we dived into him and we found so many cool stories of him. Like there was once where he dressed up in, um, in a British army off, officer uniform. Um, and he, they were, they were, the RIC were bringing some mail um, from the barracks to the train station to be transported. And Pat Keaton was dressed up in the enemy uniform, waiting there, and they came in with the mail and he saluted him and they saluted him back and then he like pulled the gun on him and made off with the with the with the intelligence, you know, um like very cool stuff, like you know, bravery, like you know, and even in his death, just running running across the field to his friend, you know, in, in the middle of the fire. Um which yeah, it is strange, like um and even I I I didn't notice even though we went we did the same course. Did you do your what's called final year project on Kevin Barry. Yeah. Or am I misremembering that? 
No, no, I think yeah. I heard it one of your podcasts, wasn't it? Uh, Kevin Barry, Kevin Barry has nearly been a like a recurring theme for me in terms of like uh, just a focus of fascination. I remember I. I remember in the leave insert, you had to do some sort of a. Oh, was that what you did on Saturday? No, no, I, I did it for my leave insert. Um, I wrote about the event, but then for my final year project in UL, I looked at the same event. But what I did was I compared the two mainstream newspapers and how they portrayed Kevin Barry, how just how the media influenced um what the story was or what the narrative was. So like Kevin Barry has just always been a. A deeply fascinating character to to do something that had such historical significance at such such a young age. It just used to baffle me because I I discovered him at a time when I was a similar age, and I was just like, it used to blow my mind that like at that age, so as well, at that age I was like, when am I going to fucking lose my virginity? It's like <laughs> this fellow was able to sacrifice himself for what he saw as the greater good it, it blew my mind he, st- he still had a sense of humor going to the gallows and everything man like i read this book about him just before christmas and all these letters he's signing off to his friends because you know they were, do- they were trained to be doctors and he's like your good friend kevin uh yours till i'm qualified you know and obviously he's not going to qualify you know because he's he's going to be hanged that morning but like, he still had that sense of humor you know um and apparently like he was given there was a race in on in dublin and he was giving tips to the guards like you know and all these horses were coming in dead last. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I read this good book about it. Actually, I have it down here. Have you seen this book? It's by one of these like nephews or grandnephews. No. I think it just came out at Christmas now. I only read it at Christmas. What's the name? Um, for, uh, Kevin Barry, an Irish rebel in life and death by Eunan O'Halpin. It's, it's, it's kind of told from that family's perspective um, of, you know, the history at the time and then how he was remembered. But there's a cool bit in there about the hangman who um, he got the boat over from Rochdale and um, a G-man collected him at the, at the, at the port and drove him and they hung him and the G-man was driving him back and the hangman goes to him, you're not going to solve the Irish problem by hanging people. I hung that boy this morning and he didn't give a damn. Like they said, he just went to, and all the guards that were interviewed as well just said like he went to the, he went to the gallows whistling, like he was just so calm. But again, it ties in. They tied into his religion. Like he had, he was talking about how he's going to be in the arms of Jesus in a few hours. Like you know, and that's all he's going to think about and stuff. Do you know? Um, so I guess, but like eighteen years old. Like I said, I, you know, I, I romanticize history and, and kind of I guess war a lot. You know, I, I love I love studying it, but I I don't like if I was alive in nineteen twenty, I doubt I would have enlisted. You know, I doubt I would have been. Uh, not in my current state anyway. I have a terrible immune system. Life on their own wouldn't have been good to me, you know. <laughs> I would have been sniffing and sneezing and giving away ambush positions, you know. <laughs> but um, no, they're just and it's a strange, and like I definitely don't have a formed or intelligent opinion on it, and it's not something I think about too often, so I shouldn't bring it up. But like the troubles, man, it's a strange parallel, you know, like the troubles is seen as such a toxic thing. But yet the War of Independence is put on this pedestal. Yeah. And the only difference is that the troubles was in the six counties that we gave up. Do you know, and it's uh, like, yes, a lot of civilians. And I mean, there was a high proportion of civilians that were killed and there was a lot of like paranoid reactions, I guess. But, you know, civilians were killed in the War of Independence as well. And Protestants were targeted and burnt out of their houses. And What I've always you know, found fascinating is how 
culturally we romanticize these figures that a hundred years ago were willing to give their lives for Ireland and Irish identity. But then when uh, Islamic terror attacks happen, we look at those young men who give their lives in the name of religion and identity and we're baffled by how, how can somebody believe in those things? Whereas we completely romanticize our own history and like terrorism, terrorist and freedom fighter. It's semantics. <laughs> you know, man, I just bought a book. I'm waiting for it to come in the post. Um, about what's his name? Gavrilo Princip, the 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 World War the the Serbian, obviously Bosnian, the the fellow who kicked off World War One anyway when he assassinated um, Franz Ferdinand because he was only like nineteen as well, um, and I think he you had to be you had to be twenty to get the death penalty. So I think he missed out on getting the death penalty by twenty seven days, um, and it was just a pure pure chance that the car took the wrong turn down where he was, you know. Um, and he tried after he got the shots off to shoot himself in the head and they managed to tackle him and get the gun out of his hand and then he managed to get the cyanide tablet out of his pocket and they managed to kick it out of his hand and, and he had a terrible time in prison. He lost an arm in prison to, from tuberculosis and he was kept mostly in like solitary confinement and he, when he died he was only just over six stone I think, you know, but like that, he, he was willing to die for his ideals, do you know? As in he tried, you know, he, he was planning on killing him and then killing himself, you know, he, but he had that like mentality to, I'm going to, and it was an act, like it, it wasn't, he wasn't thinking I'm going to do this to kick off World War I. He was doing it for like Yugoslavian independence or whatever it was, you know, again, just like nationalism, which we all in Ireland grew up worshipping. And then it's kind of when we get to, you know, singing Wolfton songs and whatnot. And then it's, it's kind of like, there's even a, there's even a problem with like the Irish tricolor. Like you can't really even, we don't have the same identity with a flag as like say like the americans you know the the, the tricolor has kind of been it's seen as republican and republican is kind of seen as provisional almost you know it's kind of a strange unless we're at a soccer match we don't feel comfortable kind of waving waving the irish flag around you know it's kind of been tainted which is strange considering we worship these men from only a few generations ago who gave everything so we could have a tricolor to fly uh, history is a strange one man it's fascinating as well listening to you would i be right in saying that you're a big believer in kind of serendipity or synchronicity oh yeah big time man. big time like fate yeah yeah i believe i believe in all that what's there's a there's a quote from is it the iliad or hector's you know what's his face achilles is, is fucking banging at the gate calling out his name and the wife doesn't want hector to go and he says something like no man against my fate sends me to Hades you know um, and no man can escape his fate from, from the day he's born basically so like you know whatever happens it was meant to be you know I love that idea of you know there's a clock on us I remember my mother um, my mother's a very not like she's she believes in God she's very religious not like she doesn't have rosary leaves carried around or doesn't you know go to mass all them, but she's very very deeply religious and um she um she had a tough her mother died when she was 14 and six weeks before her mother died her older sister committed suicide and when my mother was about 36 i was about 12 i'd say her uncle her, her brother sorry who was her, her baby brother who she kind of looked after then once her once her mother died he was killed in a, in a car accident but it was um he was driving up to up to the north he was an antique dealer 
And it was at six o'clock in the morning and his van went off the road. A fox ran across his van and he hit the brakes and he braked on, on black ice and his van went into a ditch. And uh, he, he crawled out of the van and he was all right. And a fella came along and he flagged him down and your man got out and they called a, you know, an ambulance or not an ambulance, a fire brigade or something, whatever, you know. Um, and next thing, uh, a few moments later, a, a truck is coming along. It's on a bend and the truck loses control and starts sliding all over the road. And the passenger who, who, who or the, the other driver who slowed down to see if my uncle was okay, went to the left. My uncle went to the right and bang, hit by the truck, killed. And it's just like, it feels like it was almost, but my points that I got lost was, I, I, I remember I'd be going around doing the shopping with my mother at that age, you know, I'd go into Dungarvan or maybe it was Thursday night and, you know, she's from the town originally, my mother, and people would know who she was, obviously, and be coming up and saying, so sorry for her loss. And I, I can just remember as a 12-year-old her saying, like, you know, um, you know, it was, you know, um, his clock ran out, like it was, it was meant to, you know, it was, it was meant to be kind of a thing, you know. She just had that kind of, maybe that was just her way of dealing with it, you know, that um, it's fate, it's God, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. But that always kind of stuck with me, that kind of, and again, I guess your history of just romanticised it as well, this idea that you can't escape your fate. Um, and everything, it's also kind of comforting, Every, everything, what would be, would be. What's for you won't pass you by, whether it's good or bad, and, you know, you just have to live with it. So would you be a big believer in there is no free will or that determinism yes, is a big thing complicated, man. I, I feel because surely like, surely you still make day-to-day decisions yeah, that uh, will affect what happens in five years and ten years what what i kind of think and again i as much as i am talking about it i don't and i'm open to everything i believe in rather than not believe in anything i believe in everything but i kind of think you have a start date and you finish date and anything can happen in between but if you're if your finished date is you know the 11th of november 2026 whatever you're doing you're still gonna your fate's gonna find you that day i kind of weird that you picked my brother's birthday <laughs> and the day world war one ended <laughs> 11th, oh yeah it is actually 11th of november yeah yeah actually talk about is it serendipity and actually, maybe this isn't true. I should probably go back and prove it. But I was looking at a photo the other day and the car France Ferdinand was driving. The registration plate was something like 19, like, like basically it was something like the 11th of the 11th, 18. Fuck off. Google that now. But I, that's what I was, I saw that the other day because I was, I was getting into that, uh, that Prince of Fella. And um, I was doing just reading about them and as I was buying the book and I saw that, yeah, which is, you know, probably not true, but if it was, it was cool. <laughs> I do, I do like when like those synchronicities happens though, because like the thing is there, there's so many different things that happen during the day and you don't clock them as being meaning, but I love when something happens, like just a, a pleasant coincidence or like you you cross paths with somebody again that you haven't talked to in ages. And yeah. it just, it feels like you're like, was this meant to happen? Like, I, I yeah. do believe that it's important to find meaning in things where, where either you get benefit or maybe you just, you understand things a little bit better, if that makes sense. Because mm. I think moving through life where you think ev- everything is just, um, everything is just, is a, is the right word a coincidence everything is just happens and there's literally nothing to it 
Um, yeah. I think it's just a, a, a stranger existence. But for, for, for me, like, it makes more sense to me that there's a creator behind everything than that does does this just particles came together out of nothing and created everything. I mean, there's so much detail in life, in all life, in, in leaves, in, in animals, in, in us, we're such complicated people. You know, there's more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the beach. The universe is fucking huge. We don't even know the half. To me, that it's all just an accident. I, be- I believe that there has to be a reason behind this existence as dull as it can be. Um, to me, that we just live and die, you know, to me, it, 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 it's less believable to me that we just live and die than there's some meaning to it. Do you know what I mean? What I think is amazing is that, like, what happens on planet Earth fucking blows my mind. But most people, like, anything that happens here, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's pretty normal. But, if, like, if we went to Mars and we found a fucking octopus, you'd be like, what the fuck is this thing? Yeah. It's it's just there's there's so much wonder in our existence, but because it's around us and we can sort of make sense of it, we just think, ah, oh, yeah, that's that's boring now. I understand that, and we're always nearly looking looking away from even our planet to find like, oh, what are there aliens? When you look at stuff that's in the sea, it fucking oh, blows yeah. my mind. Yeah, that's a whole like that is a whole other planet, the sea, like you know what I mean. But like, and not to be like stealing Joe Rogan talking points, but like, you know, he always says like we've forgotten our place in the universe because we'd never see the stars anymore because of all this air and light pollution. Like, um, but like if you just look up at the stars at night and you see them, you're like, what the fuck? Like we're just this, uh, we're just ball of gas, like going through the fucking, twirling through the fucking infinity, you know. Um, That's why I love things like, uh, like hiking. Like, oh, like man, when I, when I, when I go hike Lugnaquilla and like, I, I've done it by myself a good few times. Like when you're out there by yourself and you're just looking around and you're like, if something happened to me now, the world would not stop moving. It would like, you're not, it, it really takes away the, the self-importance that we, we go through our lives with so much. It's like, oh, if I meet this person and I say this, it's going to dramatically affect fucking world politics. It's like we put so much importance on ourselves day to day. But when you get out into nature and you just realize that we are part of the wider natural world, it just it makes everything else just kind of all that noise just dampened down a little bit for me. Uh, it feels like primal being out there as well, man. You know, like you're living where you're supposed to be, you know, just out in the out with the trees and the animals and the noises. Just like the you realize how noisy nature can be as well. Like, mm. you know, the, the leaves blowing in the wind, the fucking flies buzzing around, place birds squawking, even like sheep munching on grass, you know, you hear everything, but it's just so so peaceful, man. Another great book for you. The last season by um, Eric Eric Blim. So it's a non-fiction again, it's about this um one of those national parks in California. This lad, he was a backcountry ranger. He was on the job for 30 years and then he just disappeared at the start of one season. And it's like, was he murdered? Did he just fake his own death? Did he commit suicide? Was he taken by aliens? What happened to him? Like, it's a big mystery where he went. Um, but it's all just like out in the backcountry, out in nature, just hiking. It's a hiking book, pretty much. Like, it's well worth to read. It's probably the best book I've read now five years I'd say I read it last year um it's well worth the read well worth the read and um, Dave I'm, I'm really conscious that we've ran over your time 
But uh, before we finish up, as somebody who's just become a father, are there any kind of like words of advice or wisdom that you're going to try and talk impart to your daughter as she grows up from your life experience like what are what do you see as the important things that you've learned that you'd like to pass on to the next generation yeah there's, there's probably a few man I don't, I don't know i think like the main thing just from my own life experience what i tell her is or what i'd hope for her more than anything else is that she's confident i think if she's confident it doesn't matter how good you do in school or how many friends you have, or whether you're good at sports. But if you're just confident, I believe, and you believe that you're a person who can do things, and that you're a person that people want to talk to, and that people will be happy to see, if you're just confident, confident in your abilities, she'll be laughing. Do you know what I mean? Um, she could be the smartest person in the world, and if she if she's afraid to open her mouth to strangers, or if she's if she's nervous walking into the room, won't do her any good. Like so, yeah, if she's just confident. That's what I'd hope hope most for. Her. I heard a great quote from uh, George St. Pierre about confidence there recently. It's um, so like you can have all of the skills in the world, but confidence is the thing that unlocks the skills. And uh, the great comparison he made, I think, I think he got it from John Danaher is that um, a fighter with all of the skills and no confidence is like a man with all of these riches in the bank but no, uh, no card to access the riches. Yeah, man, that's a great quote. That makes just perfect sense as well, you know. Um, like I, when I was when I was growing up, like I I was good in school, man, in primary school and stuff. I was I was very good at sports when I was in primary school. I was I was I wasn't afraid to put my hand up in class and answer questions. I was talkative and stuff. Somewhere along the line, I just kind of like I got very very. I think it was in secondary school. I got very very quiet, very very shy, and you just start to doubt that you can do the simplest. Like even after like years of it, when I when I when I finished college, I think I would have had fucking. I would have struggled to tie my shoelace in front of somebody. Do you know, in case I'd fuck it up. Man. Like confidence is the key to everything, and like I knew people who who would just kind of breeze through life, but they just had, they had so much belief in themselves and they had like charm and stuff. And that's so much more important than anything else. Like, you know, but uh, Fern's mother is the most confident person ever. Like she's a fucking beast when it comes to getting anything done. Like she'll, if she, uh, she has her guidance, she'll be, she'll be lucky. So I'll try and instill maybe just like set up a little book club for the two of us maybe, and, you know, <laughs> do a little, uh, do a little book club. That's my, that's my plan. Leave the heavy stuff to grow on you. Dave, it's been the bones of seven years since I've chatted to you, but fuck me, man. It's been great chatting to you this morning. Yeah, it's been great catch up, Kev. Like we never, like we never left. <laughs> man, we'll have to do this again sometime. And thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate I know, it. I love yeah, your podcast. Is great, man. Got a few gems off it, so fair play. Actually, when I when I when I discovered you were doing a podcast, I was like, it makes perfect sense. You know, I was like, yeah, Kev would be such a good, good host because like, he's so you're so like you love to listen to you take your time to listen to other people and you can see you're you're actually really listening and and, and your, your brain is ticking over on how to respond like you know very good listener so now keep it up man i hope it goes off you dave man it's been a pleasure peace if you enjoyed this episode i would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word by sharing this episode with your family and friends subscribing to the kevin doherty podcast and following me on Instagram at the Kevin Doherty Podcast.
Thanks for listening. Thank you.